Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Drought has gripped much of the Southwest for 20 years so far, maybe a little longer. The situation has seen Lake Powell at Glen Canyon National Recreation Area drop to about one third of its full capacity, and Lake Mead downstream is running low as well. Reduced flows below the Glen Canyon Dam into Grand Canyon National Park have impacted the ecology of that Grand Canyon and the recreational experience it long has offered. The current drought shows that when the Law of the River Compact was crafted back in 1922, those who produced that water-sharing agreement between the upper basin states of Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and the lower basin states of Arizona, Nevada, and California very possibly were overly optimistic when they calculated the annual flows of the Colorado River. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. For more than a year now, the Traveler has reported on how the health of the Colorado River has impacted national parks along the way. Places like Canyonlands National Park, Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, and the Grand Canyon National Park itself. But the drought's impacts are far-ranging, reaching up all the tributaries that feed into the Colorado River and other watersheds in the west and the southwest. Against this increasingly arid backdrop, photographer Colleen Minnick has come out with a new book that both celebrates and raises concerns about the water situation in the southwest. Welcome to The Traveler, Colleen. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. You know, when you reached out with this new book, I, I immediately flashed back to when you and your mother traversed Lake Powell and you by paddleboard and she by kayak. That must have been an incredible journey. I mean, I know we recounted it on The Traveler and the stories that you provided, but you know, just it's got to still stick in your mind. Oh, absolutely. I mean, trying that was back in November of 2015. And uh, my mom and I were trying to stand up paddleboard and uh, me stand up paddleboard. And my mom was going to kayak with me across Lake Powell. And we did about four days of that. We went from uh, the North Wash put in the Dirty Devil takeout, it's sure. officially called. That's where we started, just, just a little bit north of height. And uh, we made it to Hall's Crossing. And so it's, you know, when we were on, on the lake, we had the opportunity to experience the river becoming the reservoir <laughs> uh, right around White Canyon. And that was unexpected for me. I had just never been in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd never seen a river become a reservoir. And it brought up a lot of questions for me about, you know, is the river still there? What happens to a river when it becomes a reservoir? And a uh, lot of, lot of practical questions, but also some, some existential questions for me as well. I was going through kind of a difficult time in my life and I was in a transformation just the same as the river was. And so it was very exciting to be on the water pondering such things. The other thing that we got to see was the bathtub ring, uh, which is the calcium uh, carbonate that the higher waters have left behind. So, you know, pondering the state of, of the drought, pondering the state of Lake Powell, just there was there was a lot of pondering going on, <laughs> uh, but know, I think that's that's what wild places are great for, right? And you know, besides discovery, is is really questioning and and trying to better understand, you know, yourself, you you know, uh, people you're with. My mom, of course, I learned a lot about her and and our surroundings and the world we live in and how we want to treat our world moving forward. 
You know, you're absolutely right about the the provocative nature of being on Lake Powell. Um, a buddy and I were there. We spent four days this past May paddling it. We went in at Bullfrog and headed up river, up lake, up reservoir, whatever you want to call it. And and I found myself pondering, you know, where is the Colorado River? Did Lake Powell submerge the river? Did it suffocate the river? Is the river still down below channeling its course? And then, you know, we, we had some days where um, we'd get on shore and we'd, you know, just kind of work our way up to some of the higher sandstone overlooks. And, you know, once we were, we must have been 150 feet above the river or the lake or the reservoir. And here was a fire ring that was almost old enough to be an archaeological site. And so it does, it does generate a lot of thinking about what's going on in the West. And, and certainly your, your new book, The Current Flows, Water in the Arid West, you know, it brings to light both in photography and in, in the, the prose and the writing in it, some of these questions that as a society we should be thinking about. And so, you know, what is this book? What did you intend to do by, by producing it? Well, this book actually is uh, was produced in conjunction with an exhibition that's going on right now at the Sangre de Cristo Art Center in Pueblo, Colorado. There's a bit of a backstory, and we can get into it if you'd like, but uh, the short of it is that I wrote captions for my 16-photograph exhibit that were a little bit too long and <laughs> fit on the wall, and so it ended up turning into a book. Um, maybe more importantly, I, I wanted to produce uh, something tangible for people to take away from the exhibit so that they could continue their, their, their wondering and their pondering, but also for individuals who may not be able to make it to Pueblo. Obviously, we're still kind of in the middle of a little bit of the pandemic and COVID, and should we get on planes and should we not? And so I wanted to raise awareness, not just in the West, but across the entire U.S., perhaps even the world, about the beauty of, of the Colorado River watershed and the threats that that it faces. And, you know, I, I believe that the river is still there when, you know, it, it turns in temporarily into a reservoir and it does it, it morphs a few times as it goes downstream to, you know, Lake Mead and Lake Havasu and Lake Mojave and, and whatnot. And so it goes through various transformations, but I, I do believe that this river um, still exists through all of that. And with the book, I'm hoping to not only raise awareness, but also help people take action to protect the river as we go through some of our, our drought challenges and our usage challenges and whatnot. So is it a celebration of the rivers in the Colorado watershed, or is it a warning about how they're being used and potentially overused? I'd like to think of it as yin and yang. I'd like to think of it as both. We wanted to ride the line. So the exhibit was curated by Jeannie Falk Adams, who is Ansel Adams' daughter-in-law. And it's a, it's the Current Flows exhibit is part of, it's kind of the introduction into her larger exhibition called The Vital Flows. And when Jeannie and I were talking about the ideas behind Vital Flows and the current, the Vital Waters, I'm sorry, it's, it's Vital Waters, not <laughs> Vital Flows. So when Jeannie and I were talking about 
the Vital Waters and the Current Flows exhibitions working together, we wanted to strike a balance. We didn't want to be overly negative. We didn't also, we also didn't want to be overly positive. We didn't want this Pollyanna view when all of these other things were going on. So as you go through the book specifically, I, I tried to adhere to a structure. So you know, the first paragraph of the prose is kind of what we should celebrate and things that are going well with a particular river, perhaps the Yampa or the Green, the Colorado downstream, the San Juan. And then what are some of the threats? So, you know, the endangered fish, for example, mining, uranium mining threats in the Grand Canyon, overuse um, through recreation and whatnot. And so there's this balance. And then the third paragraph is simply my uh, journal entries from those locations to sort of give my personal flavor, if you will, to, to the overall uh, introduction to the photographs. So... Did you spend a lot of time on each river that is included in this book? I mean, obviously, I know that you uh, you did the Colorado into that reservoir, Lake Powell. And I love the cover of the book. It's um, the Green River going past Steamboat Rock um, in uh, Dinosaur National Monument. Did you run the, the Green through Gates of Lodore and, and the Yampa down to uh, the junction with uh, the Green? I did. The, that particular photograph was made on a trip uh, through the Yampa River Awareness Project, which was sponsored by the Friends of the Yampa, American Rivers and Oars. And so I later, that was in, I want to say that was in May timeframe. And then later that same year, that was May 2019, later that year in September of 2019, I had the chance to go through Gates of Lador. So in 19, I actually went through both both sides of this river to see the confluence from multiple sides. Um, in fact, I've, I was just down in Echo Park uh, not that long ago swimming the confluence. So <laughs> yeah, each of each of the in, the individual photographs, I've been to numerous on numerous occasions and not so much for photography per se, but to have the adventure, have the experience. And then my camera came with me and my notebook came with me to help me convey uh, what had happened at those particular locations. The the photographs in the book um, range from 2009 to 2020, and so it kind of covers a, a number of years of, of my experiences. In 2019 alone, for example, I was down six different rivers. Um, 2020 wow. would have been the same had COVID not hit, and I, I try to spend as much time on rivers as I possibly can. I just stand up paddleboarded the Colorado River in Moab uh, this past Sunday, so I try to get on the water as much as possible. Um, not only I, I just just because I love it, but because I feel like I have a lot to learn from the water still. And, and that's, you know, what I'm hoping to inject into the book is, is some of my learnings, some of my thoughts about it. Um, but that's, that's a continual process. Has anything really stood out over the, the decade that you've been running these rivers, visiting these rivers? I mean, obviously we can go down to, to Lake Powell and, and see the bathtub rings, um, a very visible sign. You can run um, the Colorado River through Canyonlands National Park and hit Cataract Canyon. And some of the rapids that were submerged by the arrival of Lake Powell are coming back to, to life, so to speak. Um, has anything else stood out to you in, in terms of changes in the river settings that you visited? I mean, yeah, all of what you've talked about, I mean, you can see the variation in water levels, you can see it in sedimentation, um, you can see it in water temperature, even habitat, habitat changes. I, I would say maybe to add to that, I think one of the things that I think about a lot, I have not yet experienced it, but I do want to, is that the Colorado River had not 
naturally reached the Delta for, you know, what, 20, 20 some years, there's been some changes to the agreement with Mexico to release uh, certain acre feet of water to Mexico from May to October now for the next five years. But beyond a pulse flow, you know, here and there, the water had never reached the Delta. And I mean, that's, I mean, we're, we're, we're killing the river, literally. Like, so that's, you don't see that when you're at the Yampa and the Green. You see a lot of water, but when you're standing at the confluence, you know the outcome. You know, well, I I think about the outcome. I think about all of the water that I see there literally disappearing to use or evaporation and whatnot. So... I think all of those, all of the culminating changes that we see from, you know, time to time from 2009 to now, I just, I keep thinking about how are we going to get water to the Delta? How do we, how to restore the ecosystem? How do we balance our usage? Because the usage isn't going away. It's, it's, in fact, it's increasing if you look at our trends. And so how do we, how do we balance all of this? We need water. We need water. Humans need water, but so do a lot of other things. We're going to get to that balance a little bit later. Um, <laughs> okay, good. You know, and, and regular readers of The Traveler know that we've been looking at this problem for over a year now with a, a special series of stories looking at how the health of the Colorado River impacts national parks along the way, whether it's uh, Canyonlands or Glen Canyon or Grand Canyon. And um, the, the impacts are starting to materialize between the reduced water flows as well as climate change that is making these waters warmer, that are um, changing the vegetation along the, the corridors and, and um, in some cases pushing out natives and allowing invasive species to come in. We're talking today with Colleen Minnick, a photographer and adventurer about her new book, The Current Flows, Water in the Arid West. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PetreroGroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Do you love one-click shopping? With our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, you can earn rewards just by making online purchases. You're missing out on rewards points if you're not using their Visa credit and or debit card. By adding these cards to your online shopping cart with Amazon, Walmart, or other shopping retailers, you can earn a point for every dollar you spend. 
Binge watching a lot with streaming services like Netflix and Hulu? Use their card for recurring payments to earn points as well. Visit their website, interiorfcu.org, and read their blog for more details and how to apply. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. We're talking with Colleen Minnick, a photographer and adventurer who loves to run rivers in the southwest and even in the east, I'm sure. She's been an artist in residence at Acadia National Park three different times, and I'm guessing that she had a chance to get out on a a kayak um, in Frenchman's Bay and uh, circle around Mount Desert Island in Acadia National Park. Uh, Colleen, there's a big difference between water in the east and obviously water in the southwest and water in the west. Do you think that... um, as a society here in the West, we've we've taken water for granted. I mean, you know, back in 1869, 1870, John Wesley Powell was warning us that there wasn't enough water to sustain a big population. And yet we've moved West. And, and as we mentioned earlier, in 1922, they drew up the law of the river and overestimated most likely how much water the Colorado could provide. And yet, despite Major Powell, despite what we've seen, despite what's going on on the ground, we continue to build and, and, and divert the river. Right. Well, so, I mean, in, in other parts of the country, water falls out of the sky, right? <laughs> right. It rains. Like, and so in the Southwest, you know, we, we have had uh, in, at least in Arizona, a mildly active monsoon season. So rain is falling out of the sky right now. A lot of things are green, but I think, Part of it is that we we don't always sit down and think about where our water is coming from. It's kind of like buying an apple at the grocery store. Like the apple just magically shows up in our hand, right? It shows up in our basket. With water, it just comes out of our faucet. Like, and it keeps coming out of the faucet. Like there's, we just, you know. And so what I was hoping with the book is to, to challenge people to learn where their water comes from. And, and then through the exhibition and through the process of putting the book together, I learned that my water comes from the Salt River, which is, you know, just to the east of me here in Phoenix. And so it's like, okay, well, now I'm connected to the Salt River. But it, it literally sustains my life. And so I'm going to be more willing to be engaged with the Salt River. I want to, you know, go on river cleanups. I want to, I want to try to get engaged. And so that's what I'm hoping for through the book is to try and, and help people connect with their river, whatever river it is. You know, I mean, obviously the book is focused on the Colorado River watershed. It's targeted for the desert Southwest, but asking those questions about where, where your water comes from. Yeah. I think we do take it for granted. We've got, you know, lots of development. The climate is fantastic for most of the year. People want to not shovel snow, like that's water, you know? So yeah, I think just being more mindful and cognizant of our own personal usage, where our water is coming from, how the water around us is, is being used will lead to hopefully more action. That's what I'm more ground level action. And, and along with taking 
water for granted. I mean, as you say, we, we turn on the faucet and out it comes. And you didn't get into this in your, your latest book, so I'm, I'm guessing there's probably a, a second book coming. But the, the ecological changes in terms of um, the wildlife that rely on this river and the water it provides, whether it's the, the endangered fishes or, or whether it's the, the desert bighorn sheep. I understand at um, Grand Canyon that the, the sheep are coming down to the river a lot earlier than they normally do because there's a lack of water in higher elevations where they normally hang out. And I'm guessing we're going to see more more ecological changes if things don't reverse. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly. Uh, one of the things that I did do in the book is I ended the flow, if you will, the flow of, of photographs with four images from southern Arizona where the water normally, uh, groundwater, river water normally travels. And the four images at the end of the, the book are completely dry. They're dry washes. And so, you know, there are sheep that are not able to, to get the water where they normally normally do fish don't live there anymore they can't it's you know it's these watersheds are are simply dependent upon monsoonal rains or winter rains they're not flowing year round and so yeah the ecosystem is is very very different it, it's and it's changing i mean if we don't do something soon we're going to have more of those dry those photographs of dry washes um which is what we're trying to avoid right yeah so, yeah yeah any any signs of hope that you can uh, point us to? I mean, you said that you didn't want to um, overly concern people. Doom and gloom, doom and gloom, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think there should be a certain level of of concern. I mean, I I don't think it's apocalyptic at this point, but if we don't do something now, like we're not we're not headed for a great direction right now and mm-hmm. so i my hope is that showing people beautiful places they want to go to them they want to see them with their own eyes they they fall in love with them right as the quote goes people only protect what they love they only love what they know and so trying to get people to take action you know at the back of the book i have an actual become part of the flow and we have a lot of different ways listed on my website uh, the currentflows.com website in, which is in conjunction with the book and the exhibit about how you can get involved. And I, I think people are getting more involved. I, my favorite thing to do is to bring people down the Grand Canyon, rafting the Colorado River. And on like, you know, it only takes 24 hours, 48 hours for somebody to say this. I had no idea. Like this place is amazing and I want to be a part of this. And so that's, that's for me, that gets very hopeful is when I see people, you know, talking with their local, you know, their lawmakers or they're going out for river cleanups, or they just simply go out and stand up paddleboard for the first time on a, on a lake, you know, in town. Um, All of those things are going to lead to greater connectivity, um, greater connection with our landscape and the water that we rely on. And so for me, that's that's very hopeful. I think there's a lot of attention in the media right now. The Colorado River is getting plenty of, of space in, in national level news. So people are, I feel like, starting to care even more so. And, and I think just simply having the, the water, the river, going to the Delta for the first time, you know, it's five months. That's, I wish that it was year round. It's, it's a start, but I think we're having hard conversations and, 
um, we need to, we need to have conversations about this because I, I do think people should be concerned. I mean, these are beautiful places that we rely upon for survival. And so as do other things like fish and sheep and whatnot. So in plants and cottonwood trees and all of that. So the thing is, is if we have a healthier ecosystem, if we have a healthier river, we have a healthier life. Like, and that's, we need to understand that we're connected in that way. And so doing the right thing for the river really means that we're doing the right thing for humanity. Any thoughts? I mean, there's been talk for, for some years now that the Glen Canyon Dam should be breached. Just let the Colorado flow down and, and fill up Lake Mead. I mean, Lake Powell is sandstone formation. Sandstone is kind of porous, kind of sucks up uh, water. We're losing a lot of water that um, otherwise might be able to be put more to productive uses. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I'm definitely in the camp of wishing to see Glen Canyon return. I think that would be phenomenal just in terms of you know, restoring the natural environment, beauty, recreation, all of those things. But the question becomes is, is humanity still needs water? So, you know, if, if we're not getting the water from, you know, if it's not being stored in Lake Powell and getting pushed through Lake Mead, where, where do we get this water for, you know, for the people who live here, for the development that's going on, you know, how do we curb those you know, how do we curb the migration out West? How do we curb development? How do we maybe get a little bit smarter about how um, in, in agriculture, how do we, you know, how do we balance all of these things? There's a lot of hard questions that a lot of smart people are working on. And <laughs> I don't know that I have the ultimate solution, but ultimately, you know, I, I don't know that there's significant value in keeping water in Powell right now. It's sort of the insurance policy that the upper basin states have to provide water to the lower basin states. Obviously, that insurance policy is being challenged. And so I'm not sure what the right answer is, but I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about it. Yeah, and hopefully a solution, um, possibly in a, a good heavy winter, would um, push us in the right direction. But we still have to answer these questions because, as history shows, um, drought is a frequent visitor to the Southwest. The Bureau of Reclamation is um, starting releases or planned releases from up, upstream uh, reservoirs. I think Flaming Gorge, um, Blue Mesa over in Curicante National Recreation Area, and uh, the Navajo Reservoir upstream of uh, the San Juan River. You know, you mentioned water use, and in your book you point out um, statistics, and one that really stands out is 79% of the Colorado River water goes to agriculture. Yep. That's a phenomenal percentage of that river. Yeah, and that, that statistic comes from Brian uh, Richter, the president of uh, Sustainable Waters. And so I wanted to put that statistic in there. The other one that I think is a little bit shocking to me was that a quarter pounder hamburger requires 450 gallons of water to produce. And so amazing. if we look at the crop irrigation, we look at the agriculture use, a, a good percentage of that number is going to feeding cattle, which is feeding humans. And so, you know, we have to, we have to think about, is the desert Southwest the best place for some of this crop irrigation? You know, should we be moving it to farmlands, you know, in more Northern climes, you know, should we be eating lettuce from Yuma year round? I, I mean, how do we import? How do we export? It's yeah, it's, I think it goes back to 
how are we individually using the water? So it's not just turning the faucet on. It's, it's actually how I consume my own food, right? And how other people consume their food, where they're getting their food from and, and trying to encourage local consumption, you know, supporting local farmers um, and getting your food local as opposed to, you know, all of the, you know, the oil and the gas that's required for transportation across country and all of those other things, all those other factors that go into it. But yeah, so I, I did want to sort of throw those numbers in so that people to get people thinking a little bit more about what how they're consuming that water in everyday life. Yeah, I'm really curious about that agricultural statistic. I mean, in Utah, the, the Great Salt Lake has been in the news recently because it's um, heading to the lowest level it's ever been in, in historic times. Or it may, might have already reached it. And when you look at 79% of water is going to agriculture, and I'm not exactly sure what the percentage is for the the water that flows into the Great Salt Lake. But I know people are looking at, you know, are there better ways to put that water down, so to speak, on agriculture, you know, get away from flood irrigation or whatnot and be more specific with um, some sort of drip system that is more efficient in terms of water usage. Right. And and I, I think a lot of it comes down is how we pay for water too. You know, Rewarding people for conserving water is a much better solution than than I think what we have right now. So, you know, which is um, in some places it's you use it or you lose it. That's a very high consumption yeah. uh, proposition. And so actually rewarding, you know, agricultural users to to not use the water to conserve the water. And even, even uh, residential. I know I've been pressing my water supplier for almost since the day we moved here a quarter century ago because we have a, a specific amount of water and we only use we less than 50% of our allotment, but that doesn't affect our rates. And I'm sure that just gives them more water to sell someplace else. So what, what sort of conservation motivation is there? Right. And I, I mean, I think that that's an easy fix, right? Is simply changing the motivation. It, it should be. It I mean, should be. I, yeah, air quotes, right? <laughs> Simple, right? <laughs> air quotes, it should be. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, right? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, we're not going to create more rain. So we are going to have to figure out solutions like that. And there may be sacrifices. There may be things that we're not really comfortable doing. But it's going to be for the betterment of the river. It's going to be the better for the betterment of humanity. So, yeah, I mean, we're going to have to start doing things like that we just we don't we don't have the water otherwise i mean yeah it's yeah. not gonna start magically falling out of the sky in a no, drought no, so no. <laughs> and and it really it really involves the participation i think of everybody in society i mean we don't need kentucky bluegrass lawns in in the southwest um right and you need... look at things like vegas las vegas is actually starting to encourage you know, pulling out grass from their public spaces. You know, I, in my backyard, I have turf. I don't have grass. I don't have a, a blade of grass in my Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona based lawn. And we're zero escaped. You know, we have native plants that don't need a lot of water. And so I think things like that, I mean, Tucson has a really good water conservation program that's been very, very successful in maintaining, you know, water levels in the aquifer, for example. And so so I think just having some of these these techniques, some of these these approaches more widespread across the desert southwest will sustain us 
a little bit longer in, in a place where, quite honestly, I don't know that we should have a lot of humans. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you think about Phoenix, this is this is great, right? Phoenix is really at the confluence of three rivers and, you know, Native Americans were successful for a while, you know, yeah. living here. And of course, their societies collapsed and they moved on or some of them stayed and struggled. And, you know, here we are with a lot of technological advances, you know, sitting in air conditioning and and watering our sidewalks. So <laughs> like, I, I think it just comes down to being more mindful again about where, where our water is coming from and making sure that we're being motivated to conserve what right. we have. Right. Uh, you mentioned you've got this exhibit going on over in Pueblo. And for, for many of us, that's not just a, a, a drive down the, the, the street across town to get. Is there some way that people can see your exhibit without traveling to Pueblo? Yeah, so thecurrentflows.com is my website, and I have not yet posted the photographs from the exhibition. We were waiting to get a few more individuals into the, the show. The show opened in June, and it's in Pueblo through January of next year. Um, wow. And yeah, so it's it's a beautiful show. They've done a fabulous job at the Art Center. If you have time, I would definitely recommend getting out there, um, not just for my show, but also the Vital Water Show, which features Ansel Adams and Ernie Brooks and a whole bunch of um, a whole slew of amazing photographers. So there's there's lots to see out in Pueblo uh, right now. But um, I hope to have the the exhibit photographs on the website here here shortly, probably sometime this fall. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure, right? <laughs> and again, that website is the the word the current flows, right? Correct. The current, the current flows, flows with an com. S plural. Yep. Well, Colleen, it's been great catching up with you and talking about your your new book. Um, what's your next project? Oh goodness. <laughs> Um, I've just released the uh, Photographing Acadia National Park second edition, so trying to get that distributed. And I have another book coming in by uh, another author. I'm, I'm a publisher, so my buddy Guy Tall, photographer Guy Tall, is releasing a book called Another Day Down Wasted. So lots of book projects. I'm hoping to, uh, I'm working on my memoir. Uh, going with the flow, which uh, talks about that November 2015 Lake Powell experience. Uh, it also talks a little bit about my crossing of Lake Mead later in 2019. So trying to get that out, um, just getting on rivers, getting back to photography workshops in Maine and in the Smoky Mountains this year. So oh, nice. I have my I have my fingers in a lot of things right now. So. <laughs> Sounds like it. Sounds like it. Yeah, never a dull moment. And and your book can be found where? Uh, Thecurrentflows.com. Okay. And uh, the proceeds of the book are going to be split. They're going in part to uh, children's programming at the Sangre de Cristo Art Center. And the part will go to American Rivers. Um, American Rivers, um, a couple of my friends, Sinjin Eberly and Paige Buono, were involved in helping me with the uh, captions in the book. And nice. so... Uh, I've had a relationship with American Rivers for a number of years, just trying to get raise awareness through photography and writing and whatnot. So I am donating part of the proceeds to them as well. So not only would you get a great, great book, <laughs> but you'd also be supporting future generations and, uh, and rivers, which is what we're all here for, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We've been talking today with Colleen Minnick, a photographer and adventurer, as I like to uh, describe her, um, about her new project, a new book, The Current Flows, Water in the Arid West. Colleen, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, I look forward to catching up uh, a little bit down the road with uh, some of your new projects. 
Yeah, it's been a true pleasure, Kurt. Thanks so much for your time and thanks for the opportunity here. I'll catch you downstream. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Looking ahead to the coming weeks, the Traveler's Writers will be continuing our series of stories on how drought in the Southwest has been impacting parks in that region, as well as our series of stories on the impacts of invasive species in the parks. We'll also be examining the increase in search and rescue missions across the National Park System and detailing efforts to create a new unit of the park system tied to the Chesapeake Bay. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit novascotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.